Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited for our episode today. So we took a different approach to today's episode and hope you'll stick around with us for the entirety of it. So in our first half, we interviewed Kevin Dowling, who is the CEO of Carta, which is, of course, one of IW's portfolio companies. And Carta, just to remind folks before they dive into the episode, is basically a rapid and accurate mobile 3D scan technology. So Carta has robots and systems that bridge the physical world and the 3D digital kind of divide. So that's our first half of the episode. And what we were able to do was reach out and connect through our partnership with IEEE, which you'll learn more about specifically in a little bit, with uh, a really fantastic professor and researcher at Purdue University. Her name is Dr. Melba Crawford. And she joined us to talk about remote sensing technology. And we really found these two topics to be so significant because they, of course, go together. They're both talking about this idea of remote sensing, utilizing technology in this automated space. It connects with the ideas of manufacturing, of ag tech, automated vehicles. Really, you know, you can name a million different spaces that it connects. So we hope you enjoy listening today. Have fun. Welcome back, listeners. We are here again for another episode of Caffeinated Innovation from Innovation Works headquarters on the north side. I am still Pam Eigenbaum, still on the biz dev team. And I am still Jen Van Dam, and I'm still on our marketing team. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're always so excited to welcome you back to, for another episode of our wonderful podcast. Today, we are, be, we are joined by the wonderful Kevin from Carta. Got some two Ks going on there, some alliteration. Maybe there's something related to that, right? And so we're really excited to interview you today, learn more about Carta and about your history as an entrepreneur and in the ecosystem here in Pittsburgh. And Kevin, you know, before we get started getting into the details, we like we like to know from all of our guests, what's your favorite form of caffeine? Favorite form of caffeine is mm-hmm. probably tea, actually. Oh, yay! Oh, <laughs> I'm also sorry, listeners, for that noise. I'm a big tea drinker as well. What's your favorite type of tea? Earl Grey or English <gasps> breakfast. Wow, black teas. Did you just become best friends? <laughs> I think we did. But I also like you know iced tea. Yeah, yeah. Earl Grey yeah. is also my favorite form uh, of caffeine. Uh, so I've scooped that now for the mm, rest excellent. of the episode. But I also like to find Earl Grey cookies, Earl Grey cakes, all Earl of the Earl Grey, Grey chocolates oh. are the most amazing. Where do I find this? Switzerland. <laughs> Just go to Switzerland, Pam. For any of my friends out there who are going to Switzerland. You were just in Spain. You could have just hopped over. E- yeah, easier said than done. And now I can't go back in time. I didn't know that. I have to find some Earl Grey chocolate. Oh. Yeah. Anyone looking to win me over, listeners out there, it's the key to my heart. Chocolate and <laughs> Earl Grey, all in one. I prefer dark chocolate, listeners. Mm. <laughs> So, yeah, Jen, what about your favorite form of caffeine? I mean, I feel like I have to say, I mean, I like iced tea in the summer. Nice glass of iced tea with some ice, ice falls down. I I see a theme here, ice. You know, want the whole room to enjoy iced tea and pee. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) We're all tea people today. Today we are all tea people. (laughs) All tea people. So let's get into Carta. Sure. The simple let, tell us what Carta is for our listeners. We want to know kind of the basics of how you started and really what was the impetus for creating the concept and the company. 
Well, Carta is a small company. Uh, we're about four years old at this point. Mm-hmm. We uh, started right here in Pittsburgh. Uh, the conceptual roots of Carta are actually based on some early work done at Carnegie Mellon in uh, uh, solving a long-standing robotics problem, which is a figuring out where you are and what's around you. And in the sort of vernacular of robotics, that's called localization and mapping. Where I am is localization. Mapping is sort of defining what's around you. Uh, the company began in 2015, sort of as a, a research outgrowth of some work uh, done by a student at Carnegie Mellon, Ji Zhang, and his advisor, uh, Sanjeev Singh, who also has a company here in Pittsburgh called Near Earth Autonomy, uh, realized that this was a really interesting solution to this very long-standing problem. And uh, they worked to further improve that and uh, took it essentially to a, a new level to solve these problems. And... Um, one result was they realized they wanted to incorporate it. But Sanjeev had his own company, uh, Near Earth Autonomy, had his own research uh, work at Carnegie Mellon still, and uh, realized that he couldn't do that. And his company was really, at that time, really a contract R&D company. So it didn't make sense as a product company. So I was, uh, in that time frame, this was uh, late 2015, early 2016, uh, looking for something new. And uh, we started talking about this. And I have a background in robotics. I attended Carnegie Mellon three times, uh, ended, ending up uh, with a doctorate in robotics, worked in some of the first autonomous vehicles there. And I recognized what this problem was, understood the basics of the solution, uh, talked to G, the grad student, talked to Sanji, read the papers, and fundamentally understood that this was a whole new way of solving these longstanding problems. The critical thing to me, though, wasn't that it was a cool technology. Honestly, too many engineers fall in love with their technology, which is a wrong way to start a business. Um, However, uh, what I did realize is that this had applicability in many domains, and we sort of focused on mapping, and that's what we've built. Um, But we've sort of come full circle, too, and into the robotics side of things, too. Cool. So so who's your customer? That's a great question. We have uh, sort of three broad categories of customers today. Uh, The so-called AEC market, which is architectural, engineering, construction, includes commercial real estate, where these people, these folks need maps. They want maps of as-built buildings. Most buildings do not have accurate, up-to-date maps. Many buildings, especially in an older city like Pittsburgh, don't have any maps at all. There's no floor plans. There's no CAD, certainly. And even if they do have it, if you're a school or a hospital, it's usually out of date within a couple of years due to renovations and other changes happening within those facilities. Um, And so uh, these folks need that in order to plan projects, do renovations, and so forth. Um, Innovation works right here, Alloy 26, and the other buildings here at Nova Place are a great example of that. It's very likely when this was still Allegheny Center Mall that there were no up-to-date maps. So someone needed to go in, typically with a tape measure. What our systems do are allow allow you to walk through a space like that and create an accurate three-dimensional representation of that space and to convert that to a three-dimensional CAD model. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. That's what we focus on. So you just mentioned that they're buildings, right? Or can it also visualize other spaces that do not have roofs? Like wh- how does that work? Yeah, any three-dimensional structure okay. uh, can be represented in this way. So if you have anything from a barn to a... Uh, large statues. You essentially, think of it as uh, scanning um, any uh, three-dimensional structure and, and accurately capturing that three-dimensional structure while you're doing it. Um, I do want to finish answering Jen's question, which was uh, around the other who are our customers. The second category of customers are people who need it for industrial scanning. It's sort of a 
catchphrase or name that we've come up with for that category of customers, and that has to do with factories and production facilities, distribution centers, warehouses. So think of some of the biggest names in the business, and some of those folks are our customers today. And uh, they need that, but not only do they need that, but they can't ever shut down their facilities because they're running 24-7. We can operate in a very dynamic environment. The final category, which has grown quite a bit, actually, is mapping for robots. Just as people need maps, robots need maps, too. They need to know where they are, and they need to know where they're going, and we solve that as well. We have a couple of very good uh, customers in that area I can talk about. Uh, so Jabil, J-A-B-I-L, is a very large um, uh, contract manufacturer in the world, and they acquired a robot company based out of Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, that company focused on robots for uh, retail, especially grocery stores. And they've gone out to uh, deploy robots in grocery stores now. But the biggest and most vexing problem for them was creating an accurate map of an existing grocery store, which often is changing all of the time. So uh, we developed some uh, customized software for them using our systems, and they've now mapped over 500 stores for chains such as Stop and Shop, Giant, Food Lion, and others. And uh, they have deployed robots into most of those at this time. So they're continuing to build that out. And what does that do exactly for the store? That creates more efficiency for restocking, for security, for what in general? It's, it's funny. Most You could keep guessing. <laughs> yeah. But I, and but I I'm did. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, it's for mop and spill. Ooh, it's for when things fall on the aisle. One of the most interesting things I learned in the process of this was the most dangerous thing in a grocery store is a grape out on the floor. People step on it and they slip and they fall and they sue and it costs money. And the amount of money involved in this is very high and such that the return on investment for these uh, robots being deployed in the stores is on the order of not years, but uh, in some cases months. And uh, so it makes a lot of sense from the business perspective for them to do that, but they need accurate maps. And so we, uh, we provide the tools with which they scan the stores and then we had developed some customized software to put it in a format that could be downloaded directly to the robot and then used by the robot to localize within the stores. And so, and some of those stores are right here in Pennsylvania as well as uh, the whole eastern seaboard. Carta is an, an IW portfolio company, right? Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about you know your first interaction with IW, how you've worked with us? So actually, if we go way, way back, and it used to be all the way back, all the way back, we're talking the 80s, um, IW at that time, I think was still called the Ben Franklin Partnership and then changed its name subsequently for a number of reasons. Um, I actually involved with a project with a local entrepreneur at that time, Bob Unitich, who had created or bought a company out of RCA, created a company called ITS, Information Transmission Systems. And together, we wrote a proposal to the Ben Franklin Partnership, which was accepted. And uh, it allowed him to grow his company, which he subsequently sold, and uh, he he did very well. And he also paid it forward. He helped other entrepreneurs uh, later uh, during the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Additionally, I helped another entrepreneur uh, come back to Pittsburgh. He had graduated from Carnegie Mellon. We were classmates at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, he went to General Motors to work for a while. And we were talking about robot applications. And I helped him write a proposal and write some software for a robot company. Uh, His name is Henry Thorne. Uh, Henry's a well-known local entrepreneur who's founded several companies, very successful. And um, I I take some pride in helping to bring Henry back here. But uh, uh, I think the real real, um, 
output of all of that, of course, was Henry's own work in developing and um, selling, in some cases, uh, companies that he built. Uh, but fast forward now to 2016, um, when I w- met with Sanjeev and G about uh, Carta, what became Carta, uh, we talked about IW um, as well and uh, reached out to them. Uh, the EIR at that time was Larry Weedman, who helped guide us through that whole process, the proposal writing. And in April of 2016, we had um, our proposal accepted, and we were able to uh, uh, fund the company to some extent, along with a small friends and family round. Uh, it really wasn't enough to start hiring and, and building the company, but uh, a couple of us uh, didn't take salary for a couple of years in order to help drive the company and, and build it. But I'm eternally grateful to IW for uh, making that possible. And without that, I don't think we could have sort of sustained hiring and, and uh, growing the company in, in many ways. And then subsequently, through the Riverfront Ventures, our Series A, which was earlier this year, um, uh, funded us as well as part of our Series A. Uh, because of what we had been able to do so far with the uh, the small amount of money we'd raised previously. Yeah. And have you been able to interact with IW at all as a mentor and that capacity to support some of the, the newer entrepreneurs, if you will? Absolutely. Um, I would say also Dave Lachego, who's our current EIR, has mm-hmm. been incredibly helpful in finding uh, potential investors, uh, working with us on a number of things, uh, attending board meetings, uh, financial modeling and so forth. He uh, was a, a huge help in, in all of that. Uh, subsequently, I've certainly involved in a number of IW activities, whether they've been panels and events. Um, also participated twice now in the AI and robotics uh, venture uh, fair. And uh, we actually saw investment come as a res- direct result of that event. So it was- uh, Yeah, that's wonderful. It was. Uh, it, was. It, it really was. So for the listeners out there, just to give you an understanding of this, the AI and robotics venture fair that Kevin's talking about. So we, in the spring- this year completed our second AI robotics venture fair. And after a successful first year, we of course decided to come back for another. And the real purpose is to invite the AI and robotics companies in the region to connect with investors that come in globally, actually, to connect with these local AI and robotics companies and how we might bring some additional investment here to Pittsburgh in this vertical. And we've been really fortunate to partner with Carnegie Mellon both years. And it's it's been an exciting opportunity to learn about all the different companies in the Pittsburgh region, those connected to IW and those not that are serving this space. So excited to hear that Carter was able to benefit from that event this this past year. So I'm a little familiar also with the fact that you that Carter rather was able to participate in PGH Lab pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that experience and and the benefit and for the listeners again before before Kevin jumps in, PGH Lab is a program through the City of Pittsburgh and the Urban Redevelopment Authority to engage the startup community in kind of a testing model, if you will, of tech challenges at the city or a city agency or one of the authorities with the city uh, is experiencing and how technology might help solve that problem. It, my understanding is purely serves as a test. Uh, it Not necessarily that the technology is then adapted, but it gives you an opportunity to test technology and the city to test as well. That's right. And you know, there's no direct commitment initially, of course, but uh, what it does is expose the municipality and various departments to new technologies that they may be able to use. So it's very forward-looking in that way. Most cities are not sort of bastions of new technology or highly progressive in, in these types of matters. 
but they are will- uh, Pittsburgh is very willing to engage with this, not only the startup community, but um, with the technologies and products that they're developing, which is uh, very different, I think, from most other cities. Uh, the particular uh, thing that we worked with was primarily the Department of Public Works. And uh, we were able to show that we were able to map uh, things like uh, infrastructure, uh, warehouses. Uh, one of the most unusual ones was the opportunity um, to uh, go to a site. Um, for many of the listeners from Pittsburgh, they may re- remember Poli's, which is a restaurant at the bottom of Squirrel Hill. That burned to the ground years ago. Um, and uh, I, I'm and on, in that unfortunate aftermath, they had to, of course, raise the building, get rid of it. But they then uncovered huge steam boilers buried below a nearby street, and they were actually below street level. And they were uh, steam boilers originally used for the Morrowfield Apartments, which is a very, very large apartment building. One of the largest, when it was built, it was the largest between New York and Chicago. And um, we went down and scanned those at the request of the city. And uh, so they had a model. And of course, they really weren't going to use these things. They hadn't been used in decades, and essentially they buried them. But they now have at least a record of them from that time. And uh, sort of as an interesting historical artifact, as well as this sort of very interesting uh, large-scale uh, set of you know infrastructure for that building at that time. So the result was uh, that we did a number of scans for the city, got some experiments done uh, that we were able to sort of understand what the city needs uh, in terms of modeling. And we were able to do that on a fairly regular basis with two or three um, sites, such as uh, a warehouse down in near 62nd Street. Uh, the buried boilers, as well as um, a couple of other um, elements here in the city. That's great. And are you still collaborating with the city at all? Or So we conti- yeah. we've continued to talk to the city about a variety oh, of different uh, things. Um, uh, in fact, there was a, a time we were talking to the, um, the school, not the school board, but the school um, organization about scanning all the schools. There are no existing accurate maps of all of the schools. And for planning purposes, they recognize the need for that. And so we've been you know, engaged in conversations with them to uh, see if we can help. I should point out that our business is not about providing services for scanning. We don't want to compete with our customers. Uh, but we certainly are willing to do evaluations and demonstrations. And with Pittsburgh in our backyard, of course, or us in the backyard of Pittsburgh, it makes for a sort of a natural connection between the two. And we'd like to help where we can and give back. Yeah. That leads to a question. So, you know, you could probably do this anywhere, right? You could build this company and grow it anywhere. Why Why do you choose Pittsburgh? I think it's one of the best places in the country to start a company. Mm. I can't tell you how many times, I, being out on the West Coast, because we have partners and, and we do have investors there, mostly angel investors. And we talk to the VCs, whether they're tier one or tier two VCs, and they'd say, if you move here tomorrow, we'll give you a term sheet. And I said no to every every single time. I said you should come to Pittsburgh and see what's going on here. And uh, you know some of them have, um, which is good. Uh, the ones that I was able to um, have invest actually were folks who understood what we had. Maybe they had a Carnegie Mellon connection. Maybe they uh, knew us well. Uh, but the larger scale VCs, I think part of it was they they don't understand what has happened here, and they rarely travel further than a half an hour in a car to any business. One of them told me he, he won't invest in any company that's further than a, than a bike ride away. Oh, so man. I think that's a little myopic, a little narrow-minded, but um, it's the way they operate, and then they've done that very successfully for years. So I can't completely fault them for that, but it is a bit myopic in, the t- in terms of thinking that the Valley is the only place to grow successful companies. Yeah. 
one of the things that they made it very clear is that they, they, the amount of investment money they have, they call it dry powder, is this sort of the term they use for it, is very large. And so in order to gain the growth that they need to have, they need to make major investments and they need not just a, you know, a few times return, they need 10 time returns and they need billions of dollars in order to so-called make their needle move. So um, you know, maybe, maybe that's not for us, but I will say that there are lots of great investment opportunities here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I mean, I know I was on the side of recruiting the investors to come here for the AI and robotics venture fair. And I think the companies that, you know, we get to work with and that are in the IW portfolio or that are in Pittsburgh really are able to draw those investors in. Companies like yours um, really are able to draw those investors from the West Coast, from other places into Pittsburgh. I will say there there is one thing that's a pretty common refrain. We need more flights, direct flights to Silicon Valley. We need a San Francisco airport. We need Oakland airport. We need San Jose airport. There have to be more. It just makes it painful and costly to do that. And from their perspective, I can sort of understand it's the opportunity cost of getting on a plane. And if you have to make connections, you're out a full day trying to get somewhere. Um, as, as attractive as Pittsburgh can be for investment, um, it's the, the opportunity cost for them to be out of essentially out of out of uh, uh, out of their work, their mm-hmm. office for two or three days minimum. Yeah. So. Well, so airlines out there and Pittsburgh parking or not parking, sorry, <laughs> Pittsburgh Airport Authority. You know, yes, <laughs> uh, you heard it here first, straight from Carta. Yeah, I mean Need they have more. Yeah awesome CEO. And I I know she's working on it. Oh, yeah. I've heard many new flights, but uh, Silicon Valley and New York City are the ones I hear the most complaints about, about people who want want to fly here. And in fact, for the AA Investor Conference, one of the uh, VCs uh, couldn't make his flight. There were some delays or something. So uh, there's not a lot of alternatives. No, there's not. It's hard to get here. So Kevin, are you from Pittsburgh originally? No, I'm not. I, um, uh, Mary Jo, my wife, and I grew up in New England. We went to high school together. We both came to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, she is a fine arts uh, student, undergraduate in uh, uh, illustration. And then I was uh, undergraduate in mathematics. And then um, after graduating, I looked around, had some great job offers, but I chose to stay here because this really interesting institute at Carnegie Mellon had just started up called the Robotics Institute. And um, I was an undergraduate at the time. I pestered people until I found out who was actually going to be running this thing and then uh, did my first uh, summer internship in the Robotics Institute the first year it was founded and then uh, stayed on, worked uh, with a succession of professors, including Hans Moravec, who is the founder and CTO for Seagrid and uh, Red Whitaker, of course, most people know, the autonomous vehicle work, founder of Red Zone and so forth. And uh, I had a great time. It was an incredible education to be there. Um, so my wife's family, though, interestingly enough, is actually from Pittsburgh originally. Oh. But uh, um, that wasn't really the reason we came here or even stayed here. But it was uh, it was nice to, that was there, too. That's uh, That's a fantastic story. I always enjoy hearing about the startup founders who are not from Pittsburgh and have chosen to make it their home, whether it started during their time in university or they came for a first job or even for a partner because something certainly draws you in and and keeps you. uh, And the fact that you've been successful at starting a company and you're excited to start a company and you're encouraging investors to come here is such such a hat tip to the culture and the environment of the entrepreneurial oh, yeah. ecosystem in Pittsburgh. 
Well, one thing I, I didn't add there is actually after I finished my doctorate, I left. And this is in the late 90s. So at that time, uh, the, the sort of ecosystem around startups was not very strong. There had been some very nice success stories. You had uh, Lycos, you had Four Systems, uh, Wisewire, and uh, a couple of others at the time. Uh, but they sort of petered off, and there wasn't a lot of uh, sort of sustained successes and investments in Pittsburgh. So uh, I ended up in the Boston area for the next 15, 16 years, and um, uh, through a couple of startups, uh, one of which was very, very successful. And uh, But after uh, the last one there, um, I had an offer to come back to Pittsburgh. To In fact, it was Henry Thorne who said, you should come back. Things have changed. A lot is going on here. We'd always loved Pittsburgh. Mary Jo and I loved having our home here, and our children were both born here. And uh, as a result, we uh, came back, uh, joined four moms, and uh, uh, that was about a year and a half or so. And um, uh, it was great culture there. They had some other other problems going on. And they have shrunk, and since since then, actually, they've uh, done well. But uh, I had left in the end of 2015, and um, and then had been talking to Sanjeev at the time and uh, the rest is history. So. That's so funny because, right, we have boomerang stories too, right? Yeah, we, we do. are both. I moved here for college, left, moved to New York and then came back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I came here for school as well and worked for a little while before I left, went to DC for six and a half years and then came back to Pittsburgh and been back for several years. Both of us have, but yeah, this boomerang story even for those of us who aren't born and raised here yes still boomeranging so something is certainly drawing all of us here initially and then back well it's funny when i uh, considered coming back after talking with henry i started calling other friends i still had my advisor red and uh um friend john bears who was uh running building running running carnegie robotics and and others i I said well what's changed what's new what's what's the ecosystem like for startups now and of course i got the usual story lots of things are happening you know you should see lawrenceville it's incredible and uh one of the interesting things that john said was uh bike trails i said oh that's great i certainly like to bike but uh he said, well, it's not just the bike trails themselves. It sort of it shows what Pittsburgh is doing. It's sort of what follows that and what's going on in development. And then the restaurant scene, the cultural scene, it's just phenomenal what's happening now. The other thing that didn't hurt is that Mary Jo's brother had, when after, years after we left, he had actually moved to Pittsburgh as well. Um, and he heads up the Cultural Trust here in Pittsburgh. And um, uh, so it was a, a wonderful thing to also uh, sort of reconnect with my brother-in-law and um, also see what had happened to the city on that side of things. Um, I think people often take it for granted, but having three major sports teams, having a, a world-class symphony and many other attributes, um, you know, very few Rust Belt cities and Midwestern cities, uh, or cities in general sort of have that level of uh, sports engagement, cultural engagement, and all the other amenities that Pittsburgh has today. Is there a favorite thing that you have unrelated to Carta, but more Pittsburgh? (laughs) Is there a favorite thing that you have since returning and kind of the the new Pittsburgh, if you will, lack of a better way to phrase it, right? Yeah, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. Um, It sounds like you've built and grown a few companies now. What made you take the leap to be an entrepreneur? I think I was always interested at at uh, Carnegie Mellon. Um, 
I took a course, I think it was uh, Jack Roseman, who was uh, very well known in uh, entrepreneurial circles here. Uh, and he had taught a class over in the business school. It was called GSA at the time. Now it's called Tepper. And um, I actually had a business plan for a unique kind of wheel for a robot. Um, additionally, uh, office mate, uh, Mike Blackwell and I, and Mike was here for many years, but is now in the Boston area. We came up with an idea to retrofit a keyboard for a certain type of terminal. This is before, we're still when you're using uh, terminals to compete with main, with mainframes. And uh, so the interesting side of it was we created a product, we created instructions, we put an ad in a computer magazine, and we sold one. <laughs> so it was a miserable, a miserable failure uh, because we only sold one. We actually lost money on the thing, but... Uh, uh, what we understood then was how much it matters to really understand your customer and how what the customer looks like, what the total, we didn't know this phrase at the time, but total addressable market is. And so that was one lesson. Another lesson uh, was even if you literally reinvent the wheel, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a viable product. Literally reinvent yeah. the wheel. <laughs> so it was a, a wheel that uh, we had identified. It's actually commonly seen now, especially in uh, robot competitions that has rollers on it, but how to uh, use that for robotic devices because it has many advantages over traditional wheels. But if no one needs it, if it costs too much, they're not going to buy it. Um, and so my next part of the, that entrepreneurial journey you mentioned was in grad school, uh, I was approached by some folks doing some medical robotics work and helped them incorporate a company, uh, put together a business plan, approached uh, the tech transfer office at Carnegie Mellon for licensing, and that company was called Casurgica. And through a very convoluted progress, uh, sort of path, and I'm not taking any credit for this at all, eventually that team became a large part of what is what was called Blue Belt Technologies, which was acquired by Smith & Nephew. But it, years had passed, and I, I can only... I can't really claim anything on that. It really uh, uh, started out as an exercise in um, commercializing technology coming out of Carnegie Mellon on the medical robotics side. And um, the most fascinating thing to come out of that was um, meeting with the tech transfer office, and I won't name any names, but uh, when I asked, uh, what are the conditions? What's the criteria? What are the, what are the policies? And uh, the response was, well, we want a right of first refusal. We want a board seat. We want non-dilution preferences. We want, we want, we want. And the problem was that earlier, the Lycos um, success, which was a great success, brought a lot of money to Carnegie Mellon, and they used that as the model. But it turned out that's not a model that was sustainable, that investors would invest in. And that was my realization too. I'm I, that you know I'm really just an idiot grad student at that time, and uh, but I realized that no one is going to invest in that. And funny enough, the department head, uh, actually this the college head, said I should start the company in my mother-in-law's maiden name. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but uh, we did form the company. But I learned a big lesson in sort of understanding what that criteria was when you start a company and what the tech transfer policies are. Now, Carnegie Mellon's done an amazing job since then. And the more recent policy, which is very, very, very simplified, is 5% go in peace, uh, is, is fantastic. And you can see the results from that. Uh, was still a little discouraging, and um, this is my personal observation, not not Carta, of course, but the tech transfer uh, policies and results at Pitt, which has an incredible amount of R&D funding for medical research, have has not shown the same level of entrepreneurship and support that I've seen. And I, I'm told, and 
I've talked to quite a few people about this, that it has to do a lot with the tech transfer policy, ownership rights, and so forth. So what I've realized is that you can't be greedy about this. Like, the more you push the companies out the door and, and help them and support them and advocate for them, the uh, the better the outcomes will be. And that, that has to change. Yeah. It's actually a great segue, Kevin. One of the questions we like to ask all the entrepreneurs or all of our guests really is, you know, what's the advice that you have maybe top few things, top one thing, whatever it is that you would give to an entrepreneur, budding entrepreneur who's venturing out for support and building a company? One thing is since most entrepreneurs are non-technical, are technical founders, um, they have a rather uh, particular view of things. And I don't, I don't really mean this in a negative way. Their great strength has been, uh, you know, incredible smarts and grades and scores and, and uh, things that they've built. But um, sometimes the non-technical things are more important. Um, and by that, I mean, like if you look in Pittsburgh in the entrepreneurial area, what we're lacking are people with deep experience in startups who are non-technical. And by that, I mean everything from marketing, sales, HR, legal, finance, and so forth. It is changing. We have some great folks in the city on the legal side, some a growing cadre of folks on the finance side. And we need that. We need more of that. We need accountants who understand how to do this. Accounting is really looking backward. Finance is looking forward. How do you balance the two? So it's really finding all of those different um, capabilities here in Pittsburgh. And that's that's sometimes a challenge. Um, other things are, uh, you know, pay attention to not, not just recruiting, but actively finding the right kind of talent that you need to grow the company. If you just hire people like yourself, it's not going to work. You know, that's just not the, the, that's not a success. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that people have to do to understand what they have to do to build a great company. I'm not Our saying. Our director that. of HR says that a lot. <laughs> good, good. Um, and, and I think the entrepreneur has to be very open to other opinions and voices. Um, uh, there's too many things in the news of people who aren't like that, and uh, we need to um, uh, really be much more open about advice and thoughts from uh, from other people in the in the company and outside of the company. Um, I, I claim no knowledge of anything but some of these sort of technical things. I have a background and experience in a, in a, a few different things, but uh, inevitably I rely on my team to do that. And I and anybody who's ever worked for me knows I don't micromanage it. I just say, here's the goal. How do we get there? And um, I really enjoy doing that and, and working with people to do that. That's great. Wonderful advice. I mean, building a great team, leveraging resources. I think those are all great pieces that entrepreneurs out there, whether they have a business in the early mm -hmm. stage or they may be a future entrepreneur, great advice to take. One other thing, especially in tech startups, is that they're often full of very smart people right? mm -hmm. from great schools and great backgrounds. Um, there's often what comes as a make versus buy decision. Uh, should I buy this particular piece of technology? And the very smart groups, especially robotics companies for some reason, will say, oh, we can build that. We can do it better than they can. The question isn't that you weren't smart enough or that you could do it better. Should you do it better or should you do it at all? And the reason for that is time to market. If you spend all of your time reinventing all these other things that other people have already done, including software, including uh, software packages that you might buy, you might say, oh, that's too expensive. No, no, no. <laughs> What's the value in having it already being done for you? And so that's probably one of the most important things, uh, learning sort of 
coming up growing companies is that you really need to understand uh, your limitations and what you can do and what the most important thing is. There's a great quote. I'm not going to get this right, but I think it was uh, distinguishing the difference between urgent and important. Uh, everything seems to be urgent, but is it really important? And sort of figuring that out. Yeah. We've heard that from actually a lot of entrepreneurs we've interviewed so far. Um just prioritizing. What yes. does that look like? Yeah. Especially for an entrepreneur who it seems as if you have so much time, right? You're not clocking into a nine to five, <laughs> but you don't. There's not enough time. It never is. Yeah. Yeah. So our final question, Kevin, is where can we find you online? Are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? If you know our listeners are listening in and they want to learn more about Carta, what where, where do they go? Uh, Carta.com. And Carta is spelled K-A-A-R-T-A. Dot com. That's probably the best way to find out about what our company is and our team um, and so forth. And then uh, uh, I am on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find me. Just do my name, Kevin Dowling plus Carta. And it'll, <laughs> it'll probably come right up. And uh, we are on LinkedIn. I mean, we are also on, on Twitter. So Carta has a Twitter account. It's uh, at Carta3D. Um, uh, we, other than that, on the social media side, I am, uh, I am really not present. <laughs> not there. your, your piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, our head of marketing, Kathy is, uh, absolutely amazing at sort of building out all of the things we need to sort of get the word out, whether it's a show, whether it's her website, our brand, our logo, all of that. Um, that's another uh, sort of aspect to building the company is we've been able to find in Pittsburgh, People for all kinds of fantastic talents, industrial design, uh, uh, base design is uh, the company helping us. Uh, Daedalus is working with us on projects. Um, uh, Carnegie Robotics is uh, working with us closely in terms of building and developing new products as well. So the whole, uh, I keep using this term ecosystem, but it really is. There's a lot here that can help you build a company. We have customers right here, other startups, and um, uh, it's been phenomenal working with all of them. Kevin, this has been great. I've learned so much. I, I didn't know a whole lot about Carta prior to, you know, inviting you in. And I've done a little bit of research before and then now learning even more from you. It's just so interesting uh, to have that background. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and uh, hope the listeners out there also really enjoyed the episode and, and got something new. And please reach out to, to Kevin if you want to learn more about Carta and you possibly want to connect with them. That's great. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed Thanks. This. Welcome to this second half of uh, our episode today, listeners. We are joined today by Dr. Melba Crawford, who is joining us from Purdue University. Melba, welcome and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So, Melba, before we begin, and of course, you know, we want to learn all about your great work mm -hmm. in uh, in the ag space and in geospatial. However, you know, we ask all of our guests about their favorite form of caffeine before we dive in. So tell us, what is your favorite form of caffeine? Well, I have to be very clear about this. I work long hours. I get up early in the morning. <laughs> and so it has to be espresso. Ooh. And I like espresso, yeah, in a form of of, uh, of cappuccino, and nice. so you know that that takes a little bit of the the strength out of it. But uh, but yeah, that's it. And it actually keeps me from drinking. Um, uh, I would say you know 
watered down coffee. So I drink very, I probably have less caffeine than most people during the day that drink, you know, regular um, coffee unless mm-hmm. it's perhaps decaf. Yep. So. Nice. That sounds like it's just up Jen's alley. It, I mean, I'm going to have to try that. I'm just, <laughs> you know, just espresso. So Melba, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to dig into, you know, who you are. And um, we'd love to start with you telling us a little bit about your work. Sure. Um, So as you said, I'm a faculty member at Purdue. I have a little bit of an unusual appointment in the sense of I have uh, appointments in the College of Ag and in the College of Engineering and within engineering in civil engineering, electrical engineering, and industrial engineering. And that sort of speaks to the area I work in, which is very uh, cross-disciplinary. I've been here about, well, since 2006. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was at the University of Texas, Austin, which is another great institution. Mm -hmm. The um, reason I was recruited here was because of a strong collaboration between the Colleges of Engineering and the College of Ag. Uh, And uh, that's been, excuse me, a strong collaboration between the Colleges of Engineering and Agriculture, which has been actually going on continuously since the 1960s. And so there was um, a need for some new leadership and new technology. And so when I was recruited, I became very excited about that. And so that's where I've been putting an awful lot of my time since I've been here. And Purdue is a land-grant university, correct? It is, and I think that's a big part of this collaboration between the College of Engineering and the College of Ag, and it's pervasive, I think, at other land-grant institutions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of my particular field, uh, which is in sensing signal processing, uh, then it's kind of unique um, uh, at Purdue in terms of its long-term commitment to that particular field. That's really interesting. So when you say sensing signal processing, for our listeners, can you break that down? You know, what does that work look like? So when we talk about sensors, um, and I, I think that everybody has uh, probably the same general concept mm-hmm. that you're acquiring information from something, mm. that's a, you know, some sort of technology. Uh, the word remote sensing is um, refers to data that are acquired from a sensor that in which you're not in contact. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing you might think of is a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, a thermometer, you might, that's not remotely sensed because you're in contact with whatever it is you're taking the temperature of. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, um, but remote sensing can... Uh, really encompass a lot of technologies. And in this agricultural engineering space, then historically it's been involved with uh, cameras. Um, it could be cameras that are going to be sensing what's in the visible range, what your eye can see, mm-hmm. just, just, you know, the same as your, your phone. Uh, but it can also involve sensing in other wavelengths, other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that are outside of what your eye can see. And so the reflectance uh, or the emission, it could be a thermal emission, Mm -hmm. uh, would be sensed by a sensor 
And then uh, it could be related to chemistry, you know, the, the stress on a plant, mm-hmm. um, in, in a manufacturing facility, you know, everything you can think of in an ag space, you could also transfer to many other domains mm-hmm. and uh, where sensing would occur associated with, you know, as I said, manufacturing, for example. And um, so that's what the sensing part, you know, is involved with. And then the remote part means that it's just not in contact with uh, whatever is being sent, which makes a lot of sense in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Now, you might might have a leaf clip that you might put on, you know, clamp onto a leaf and, and get a measurement. But um, when we talk about remote sensing, then what we, you know, in ag space, then a lot of times you have a lot of area you have to cover. And so you can't get, you know, that leaf clip on very many plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the sensing is done remotely from and historically from space, from satellites, um, or from manned aircraft. And now the technology is, in terms of platforms has moved forward to, the, uh, to UAVs, really, really pervasive. Everything from, you know, what you could buy at Walmart Mm-hmm. to uh, very high-end technology that's used with uh, sensing of the spectrum. It could be active with lasers. It could be radars. Lots of different kinds of technologies mm-hmm. are, are being used now in this agricultural space. And then again, if we were to take it outside the agricultural space, let's think about autonomy. Because yeah. what are cars doing? You know, oh, yeah. a lot of this avoidance of, of uh, collisions, you know, etc., a lot of the same technology. So those of us that work in the signal processing part, which is the second part of my my field, uh, are at work with developing algorithms for analyzing data. Mm. And uh, so we're, you know, we work at the intersection of, I would say, pure computer science and mathematics and then applications, which could be in, you know, engineering traditionally or agriculture or health. Health science mm-hmm. is an yeah. awful lot going on in that space as well. No, but you've touched on so many great things. I don't even know where to start or <laughs> so not many where, hot to, where to go next. So, you you touched on the fact, of course, a big significant part of your work is in the ag tech space. You mentioned manufacturing. You mentioned auto- automated vehicles. You know, the list really goes on. So, from your perspective of what you've done in collaboration with the startup ecosystem, how have you and I know a lot of listeners will connect the t- connect it, of course, based on some of the stuff you just said. But for some others who may be less familiar, how does this really connect within the startup world? And then after that, I want to dive into your work with IEEE. And mm-hmm. we, so we can do that after. But first, kind of what's the connection with the startups? Mm-hmm. So if I could back up a little bit, because my sure. uh, history, as I said, for the last several years has been broader than my own career. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an associate dean in the College of Engineering, uh, responsible for research, then I, you know, have interacted with and, um, you know, become uh, supportive of a, a lot of uh, people in this, this innovation space. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, and this is true across the country, we're teaching our students differently in engineering. Uh, when I went to school, nobody thought about entrepreneurship um, or innovation. You were to graduate and you went to work for a big company. And right. typically, in, you know, this isn't new to anybody that's going to listen to this, but, you know, you worked for many years. 
But now uh, we encourage our students to to think about, you know, think creatively, think about what they may uh, be able to develop from as they're going through school and, and learning, you know, more of the fundamentals. Um, there are lots of opportunities at universities for students to actually learn a lot about uh, how, you know, the whole process of, of entrepreneurship in, in that landscape. And then uh, to enable them to put them in, you know, contact with, um, you know, with the funding opportunities. In my own space, uh, I have been recently involved with a group that has taken the um, algorithms that we developed for a project funded by the Department of Energy mm-hmm. and, you know, a wider range of, of potential applications and have spun them out uh, to form a small company. Mm-hmm. And it's been a real, you know, learning experience for all of us because most of us in this particular group are fairly senior. And, um, and so, you know, it's, uh, and I would say that and at Purdue, there's, it, it's, in terms of agriculture, there, it's, you know, really all over the place. Everything from food science to people flying UAVs to people developing um, sensing technologies to people, um, you know, doing uh, work with some um, new application, new, new opportunities for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, applying pesticides or, or developing, you know, different uh, capabilities for sorting seed. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, in engineering, similarly, we have, um, you know, the, the many, for many startups, the model is someone will have an idea during graduate school. Yep. And so you take that idea and you develop it further in a small startup that, um, you know, and it's the best time of your life to do it when you first graduate because you typically don't have a lot of other responsibility and so you can take more risk. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it, it's a, a way of... Uh, it's a. I think it's it's something that's particularly that's really different uh, than it was even ten years ago, and so you know this this experience. You know, you may or may not be successful, but you are always successful in what you learn. So that whole space is, uh, uh, I think, an exciting one. And you know, sometimes it makes me wish that I were a few decades younger. <laughs> Before we get to IEEE, actually, I have another question. So, you know, you're talking about the startup space, and I know uh, we've talked previously about this, your connection with Carta. Earlier in this episode, we chatted with Carta and the work that they're doing. They're based, of course, here in Pittsburgh, and they are part of the IW uh, portfolio. Can you tell us a little bit about your connection with Carta? I know you've had a little bit of interaction with them, uh, but that would, I think, would be so helpful for our listeners as well. Uh, actually, because of that broader geospatial mm-hmm. arena, it has been fairly tangential. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, my own work has been so the, the geospatial environment um, uses signal processing, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, because there's a spatial component of it. When we used to think of um, of imaging. Imaging, when you, it doesn't have a, a geo reference kind of a, a component. It doesn't have a location. And so when you do any kind of mapping, it's really important that to have, you know, that all of that be consistent. And so the geospatial world that came about in the last 20 years 
and has been, you know, enabled by everything from GPS to advancing computer technology to, you know, better interfaces, then uh, I think that um, in, in general, you know, this is a, a bigger space in some ways. You know, there's, there's a major overlap with fencing because a lot of the fencing uh, technology and a lot of the data that go into these systems, uh, you know, is, is from my world. Uh, but a lot of the decision making, uh, a lot of the common interfaces that are that, you know users can can access and use for everything from um, you know real estate to the ag space to manufacturing mm-hmm. to uh, you know uh, just transportation infrastructure monitoring uh, that all resides in that geospatial box, if you will. And um, being able to to um, put your data, whether it's sense data or it's unstructured data, it could be text, it could be crowdsourced, you know, kind of information, then that's a capability that, you know, these, if you want to call them boxes, uh, are, are rapidly developing. And, uh, and the other thing that, that is common between the two is in the space of signal processing, signal and data analysis, then we have to develop algorithms that are agnostic in some senses, although you develop your algorithm and, and you, to do it well, you need to understand the application that it'll be used for. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you hear the word big data. You hear the word deep learning these days. And all of those capabilities are used now more and more uh, to develop um, predictions and help with decision making. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that there's a very big intersection mm-hmm. in in those spaces. Yes. That's awesome. And and the case with Carta, right, is it's helping with decision making for the, you know the robots and um, going through mm-hmm. spaces and man- manufacturing mm-hmm. plants and things like that. So, Melba, yeah. I'd love to. Um, understand the work that you do with um, IEEE because that's how we were connected with you was um, we have a really strong partnership with IEEE through our hardware accelerator. Um, They've been really fantastic partners. And I guess for our listeners, IEEE is the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. And Pam, IEEE stands for the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, yes. but most folks just call it IEEE. IEEE. <laughs> exactly. So, so it, I mean, it's great. And for all of our listeners, especially here in, in Pittsburgh region or others, of course, but, you know, IEEE is so significant for so many of the startups mm-hmm. and, you know, it sounds like it's a great resource and asset. So entrepreneurs... You should get connected with IEEE. So one of the things to actually facilitate that, then, uh, and many entrepreneurs, but not all, are young people that don't have a particular affiliation, but maybe they have um, need for access to technology. Um, you know, they're not at a university anymore and have access to a wide range of journals. And so IEEE has made it very, uh, there's a, a program that uh, for entrepreneurs that uh, they have made it very uh, inexpensive for entrepreneurs to engage and have access to um, this very large repository of, um, of knowledge from conferences and journals. Oh, that's fantastic. 
That's wonderful. No wonder you were the president of IEEE. <laughs> oh, I wasn't the president of IEEE. Oh. I was the president. No, no, no. Much less than that. I was the oh. president of one of the societies. Okay. The Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. And I am members of multiple societies. Now, right now, <laughs> I so we have a loose umbrella over the technical mm. societies to coordinate. And so I'm a member of the leadership team for what we call the technical activities board uh, over the technical activities. And so that, you know, provides another opportunity to uh, engage across, you know, the range of IEEE. But no, I am not the president of IEEE. Now, my speaking of, of Pennsylvania, the president of IEEE is from Pennsylvania. Ooh, okay. Yes, the current president, I cannot say enough about him, and you might want to get hold of him yeah. to talk to him. Yeah. It's Jose Mora. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, uh, he is a signal processing person. Very interesting. And uh, he's a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon. Well, we will have to maybe invite him on for next season. Yeah. That's such a great that idea. Would be, yeah. So he will be past president next year, but he will be very active. And so he might have a little more time. I like it. I like it. So Melba, before we wrap up, is there any last minute advice that you can provide to entrepreneurs and innovators in the space uh, that you want to share with our listeners? You know, it's interesting to me that I in teaching, you know, as an instructor, I have come to be able to uh, sense in people, you know, there are people that seem to have an entrepreneurial gene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very interesting. You know, they express it in different ways. Um, and, you know, trying to, to nurture that, uh, and at the same time, you know, help them to get, develop yeah. the foundation that they need. And I think that that's really important to have a, a foundation of knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, that you can, can use to, uh, you know, launch your idea. And actually, as you go beyond your initial idea or maybe change your initial idea, still have some strength uh, of your own and with your partners in this domain. Uh, I've seen a number of our small startups from the university where the students were excited, but they didn't have enough depth in terms of their, their knowledge to actually carry something across the finish line. Uh, you know, you'd get a quarter of the way down the track and start slowing down and then maybe they would get discouraged and mm -hmm. then, you know, so you don't, you, you, it's having the right mentors and having oh, uh, the adequate depth I think is really important. And one of the exciting things for me is I'm seeing companies that even venture capital companies mm -hmm. are providing now um, and it's without necessarily, you know, money being given or money, you know, or requiring payment, uh, providing mentorship, uh, feedback, and, um, and for more than one kind of individual. Totally. And I think that this is really uh, a, a great thing. It's, it's like taking the entrepreneurship to a, sec a next level. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's really good for the long term. Yeah, that's awesome because that's I, – I love that you said that because that's one of the things that we really um, do at Alpha Lab and Alpha Lab Gear and Innovation Works is our mentor pool. Uh, the folks that we connect our companies with are amazing and they are 
wanting to help those companies and um, they're very active. And so I, I love hearing you say that, that um, you like seeing that elsewhere. I do. And I've seen even competitors mm-hmm. that, you know, from the point of view of mentoring that kind of work together in a space competitors in a particular domain, but they will provide feedback to, you know, entrepreneurs yeah. that are starting up in a space. Yeah. Um, collaboration. Was, yeah. That's, that's a, a great thing. And, uh, um, you know, we started this uh, in our conversation last time uh, covering a, a wide range of topics, including, you know, I think uh, autonomy, connected vehicles, um, mm-hmm. robotics, indoor for manufacturing. Um, the Many universities are um, embracing this sort of in a writ large way, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of the things that tend to have a common threat, such as robotics, whether it's in agriculture or manufacturing or in health, um, just as three examples, then um, there's a uh, there's a good amount of um, interaction across that space uh, within the universities, at least. And, um, and then, you know, so it's not just a homogeneous group of people right. who are doing, you know, uh, robotics for FedEx to, right. um, you know, move packages in, 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 indoors or for the DOD or for agriculture. So I think that, you know, this landscape is very competitive internationally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think to, to keep ourselves, uh, as, you know, in the U.S. as well as internationally uh, uh, competitive, then I think we have to do that because, again, there's a lot of fundamentals that, right. that we need to keep advancing. We can't just take an application to and, and uh, expect to advance that to the forefront. You have to have that. Con- and then if you have to retreat or move in a new direction, then you have something to launch or leverage on. Yeah, yeah. Culture of collaboration, so important. So our final, final, final question for you, Malba, is where can we find you? You know, um, are you online? Do you have any, you know, publications coming out that we should be looking out for? Um, you know, if the folks listening want to learn more about what you do, where can they find that information? Sure. So uh, my whole, since I've changed my, my uh, you know, career in terms yeah. of my administrative position, then now it's, you know, an exciting time to, you know, upgrade my engagement, uh, mm-hmm. uh, at least to the outside world in terms of my website and all that. But, yeah, yeah so I publish in two arenas, and uh, one is, you know, more the theoretical arena and then the ag space. And um, we are particularly excited about some of the work that we've done uh, with multi-sensor integration and data acquisition from a multi-modality point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, for predicting uh, yield of a particular crop. And, uh, and so we're publishing this in the intersection space. So it's, the particular area is called phenomics. And so when you have plants or animals, um, then the genes are one piece. So that, you know, can be used to predict what the outcome will be, mm-hmm. genetics. But genetics isn't everything because, as we know, in all cases, that the environment is an important piece. So let's say 
uh, with regard to ag space and the soils, the, the environment in terms of the, the meteorology, um, the temperature, you know, the rainfall, except, and then there's the management practices, mm-hmm. how you manage that, whether you, you, uh, when you plant it, then how much you, um, you use for, for uh, fertilizer, for example. So putting all that together in a, in a predictive space. And so we have been able to use our technology and our signal processing to put it together to actually, so that the outcome in terms of what the plant actually turns out to be is called phenomics. When you make that measurement, it's called phenomics. And so we measure, so we have developed technology to make measurements and then to use those in a predictive mode in conjunction with biophysical models. And so that's right at that intersection space. And you'll be able to, to see some of the stuff that we're, we're doing in that space in, in publications. The other thing that is really important is you cannot get data to train your models. At, we do that for the literature, but you cannot do it in applications uh, for every single field or every single plant to train the model and mm-hmm. tune it. You have to be able to train a model and take it somewhere else. Yeah. And use it, you know, apply it. Well, things aren't just quite the same there. So you have to be able to transfer your learning, transfer the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so that area of expertise is, uh, of, of work is something that I've been working in for uh, well over a decade. And so it happens to be quite relevant to transfer between crops, to transfer between environments. So we are um, currently working in Indiana mm-hmm. uh, and Illinois, but we're next week going to be going to India. Ooh. And in the winter, we're going to be in South America. Interesting. And so, yeah. So, how do you uh, may develop robust capability and uh, actually be able to have good predictions? So that's you know technically kind of where I am right now, and continuing to learn more about the application domain. Mm-hmm. You know, when I took this job at Purdue, my father, who was a farmer, said, "What? They're hiring you in ag? You're an engineer." And so, you know, it just really shows how, how things have, have evolved. And, uh, and it's great to work at the intersection. And, you know, when you interview people in the future, I'm sure there'll be other intersections. But I think that's one of the most exciting things about being an engineer right now. It's forever, to, forever changing, right? Yep. Forever growing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Melba. Um, we've learned so much. And I think our audience is really going to appreciate this episode um, and they'll be able to look for your work and publications and you know even the international work that you're going to be doing soon Uh, so thank you so much you're welcome and thank you so much for the invitation innovation works is the southwestern pennsylvania ben franklin technology partner music created by ethan ziegler startable alum special thanks to our season two producer Sidekick Media Services.